You're on. All right, guys. Thanks so much for coming tonight. Um, just like I said, I'm sorry that I haven't been here, and we really miss you guys on Monday nights. And we probably aren't going to have perfect attendance either for the next um, couple weeks, but we're going to come when we can, and we love being with you guys. So um, <clears throat> Lauren sends her best to the kids. We are in a series called The Gospel You Missed in Youth Group, which sounds kind of like a, a harsh, negative um, title for a series. So I was a youth group kid. I, I followed the youth group rules, and I uh, had a good experience in youth group. So why, why a title like that? I think the reason is because it's really easy uh, in youth group to have a view of Christianity and the Christian life that's, that's kind of shallow, kind of surface, is mostly um, behavioral-based. Don't drink. Don't have sex with your girlfriend or boyfriend. Don't go to R-rated movies. Unless they're about Jesus being crucified, then it's okay. Uh, and So you kind of have this morality, and, and, and it doesn't really capture the great majestic vision of the gospel. And it... <clears throat> Sometimes we get all involved in social projects and maybe even mission trips, and you miss really what the whole story's about. And so um, we've started, we do this series, it's five weeks, and we think there's five great questions in life, uh, or five great questions of the gospel. And if you understand these five questions, I think you're under, you can understand the meaning of your life. And so tonight's the second question. The first question we talked about last week, just to kind of review a little bit, we talked about um, who is God. And so I think every great question in your life, if you want to have think, have got questions about your marriage, got questions about your parenting, got questions about your job, got questions about social justice, got questions about how we should interact with the poor, got questions about church. All great questions start with God. So if you're thinking about an important question in your life, it starts with the character, the identity, the person, the relationship of, of God, the Trinitarian God. And so that's where we start the question of what is the gospel, who is God. And so we've said that God is really three things. One is God is righteous. God is righteous. And that if you're to be righteous means to be true. So you're true to yourself. So, uh, you know, if you're a, 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 a um, if your identity is a southerner and you're righteous, then you're going to, you know, talk like a redneck like I do. And you're going to go to NASCAR races and you're going to watch college football. You know, you're going to be righteous to your identity. And so God is a perfectly righteous being. He's perfectly righteous. He's going to be true to himself. And then himself, he's got the two core characteristics of God. He's holy, which means God is going to be separate from sin. To be perfectly holy means he cannot be in the presence of sin. And that creates a whole cascade that really sets up the story of the Bible. Is This is a God of holiness who will not tolerate or be in the presence of sin. It also means he has to judge sin. To be holy means you cannot look the other way when there's sin. You have to judge it. And then secondarily, or not secondly, not secondarily, maybe maybe most importantly, but God is loving. So you have this God who's perfectly holy, must be separate from sin, but God is perfectly loving. He loves sinners. And so really, almost at the very beginning, you start thinking about the identity of God, you maybe can kind of see there's a little tension there. And tonight, really, my goal is to make that tension worse. And so I'm going to try to develop what is this tension in the story of the Bible that um, that's unraveled by the power of the gospel. Um, I want to make one more point here, and I, I think it's uh, important to make, and it's that if you kind of don't see the gospel in its fullest context, you'll miss the whole thing. And so if, if we're unwilling to kind of see 
the problem that the gospel is addressing, uh, we won't see the power of the gospel itself. So I'm, I'm going to come back to that idea in a minute when we kind of talk about what the problem is. Um, but that's an important thing to keep in mind is you kind of have to know the backstory uh, to understand um, the, how important uh, the story of Jesus is. So tonight we're talking about who am I. So we ta- we said that the the um, the scripture for this series is Romans three twenty one through twenty six. Uh, Romans three twenty one through twenty six. So there's probably four or five passages in the, in the Bible that I think just really stand out. Like if you get this passage, you kind of get the thing. This may be you know number one passage. Like this is kind of this is kind of the the whole thing. If you get this passage and, and what it represents, I'm going to read it and then we'll talk about what we're talking about tonight. But so at the beginning here, verse twenty one. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice, because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So Paul, like any good theologian, uses a bunch of run-on sentences, a bunch of commas, extra syllable words, kind of get lost when someone reads that to you. So what we're going to try to do is just break that text down into five weeks. And so tonight, um, last week we talked about the righteousness from God. Who is God and what does that mean? So tonight we're talking about, um, see our, our verse this week is verse 23. So 3 verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I'm, tonight, um, I'm just going to make three points, and then we'll be done. Um, but I think, in a lot of ways, the most important ideas in life are hard to live out, but simple to understand. And so uh, this is one of those. It's a simple idea, but it, but it's hard to live out. And so um, we're going to try to break it down and see what, see where we land. So first point I want to make is that we have all rebelled against God. We have all rebelled against God. <clears throat> so in our culture, the idea of sin is not popular. Right? The idea of sin. If you turn on the news tonight, ain't nobody talking about sin in the world. Right? We say things are uh, disgraceful, corrupt, prejudicial, racial, unjust, unfair, but we rarely say the word sin. And I think that says a lot about kind of the context that we come to world problems from. The paradigm that we see, even in the church, the paradigm that we see the world through. Um, the Bible, though, tells a different story. Because the great problem in the world is not that humans don't get along with each other, or that I have anxiety or tension in my own heart that's not settled. The great problem in all of our lives is um, that we don't get along with God and the separation we have from our Creator. Right? And so a lot of the downstream effects of a righteous life, a life lived in community with God, does heal the ills of the soul and heals the interpersonal relationships and the relationships that are broken between groups and nations and countries and history. Um, but those aren't the main problems. Those are the symptoms of our ultimate problem. Our ultimate problem is sin, our separation from God. So sin literally means to miss the mark, 
to do the opposite of justice or to transgress God's law. All right, so sin means to miss the mark. So here's, a, here's a, I think, a, a reasonable definition of sin. Any thought or action that is not consistent with God's will for our lives is sin. Any thought or action that's not consistent with God's will for our lives is sin. That's a little different maybe than like the, the kind of youth group view of sin. Don't drink, don't have sex, don't go to bad movies, don't say curse words. Uh, I think the Bible's view of sin is a lot bigger and a lot more corrosive and a lot more inclusive. Right, so maybe the uh, the kid in the youth group that wears the, the button down shirt and doesn't say bad words and doesn't go to bad movies, he, that guy's a sinner, right? He kind of he plays well in our ch- church culture, but the biblical view of his life or her life is sinner separated from God, right? And so I think we need to have maybe a lot more exclusive view of the cross, of the power of grace, and um, and what the that the cross means and how we get to relationship with God, but we need to have a lot more inclusive view um, about sin. And so I think it's easy to kind of be in the church and say, you know, those people out there have this problem that, that I don't struggle with. And so we draw lines. We say, well, people who live in this country or have this behavior or um, struggle with this temptation, they're the sinners and we're, we're the good people. We're at a Bible study on Monday night. Uh, but the line between sinner and saint doesn't run between them and us. It runs right down the middle of my heart. Right, right, right here is the line between sinner and saint, and that's really the story of the Bible. Is that that's that's the place we all find ourselves in. Okay, so tonight the lesson will be a little bit different. There's a, a bunch of texts that I just want us to read out loud, and the reason is because when we're talking about ideas this big, this comprehensive, really, I'm telling, I'm trying to tell everyone tonight this is a huge problem for you. you know, And I want to kind of enter into your space, into your psyche, into your worldview, and tell you that something is jacked up, is really messed up. And if I'm doing that, that seems really arrogant for David to come in here and tell you. I think the truth is, if you came tonight to hear my opinion about who you are, you, like, you probably wasted your time. Like, you could have stayed home and, depending on your preference, watched your favorite cable news station or watched Monday Night Football or, or whatever. You know, you, this was not a good use of your time. But what I do care about is not what I think or what I say, what the Bible says, right? That, that's the ultimate question. So I want to spend a lot of time reading from the text uh, tonight. So what we'll do is the, the, you see these verses just listed in um, your notes. And so let's just go around the circle. And when we come to a verse, I'll just ask whoever's next to read it. And your verses should be on the back of your notes. You can just read the verse there. And then I'd invite you, um, I, none of these verses are out of context, I promise you, but if you want to go back and read them in context, I think that would be even better um, just to kind of see kind of the narrative of the Bible and where they're going. If you don't feel comfortable reading, that's not a big deal. Um, just tap the person next to you and we'll pass it on. But I think it would be a good opportunity to kind of hear from the Bible, which is really the authority for what we're trying to do here, and, um, and maybe include everybody too. So, all right, we rebelled against God. This is... Uh, letter C, we're all guilty of sin. So Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So who's included in this problem of sin? All. That, that includes all. Everyone. Okay. James 2. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So if we want to have like a um, church outreach program that would not be like the good verse to like bring in the, the masses, right? If you do everything perfect but mess up once, you're out, right? That, that's not gonna. That's not attractive to the world. That's not the way our culture thinks about sin and life. Um, but that's not uh, just because it's not popular doesn't mean it's not true. 
And so the truth is, God's standard is perfectly holy. And if we fall short of that standard, then we are not holy and we're separate from God. Okay, and then 1 John 1 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Yes, let's not go around claiming that we haven't sinned, right? That's pretty harsh words for that kind of arrogance. I'm saying, and not only are we guilty of sin, all of us, but we're going to be held personally responsible for our sin. Ezekiel 18. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The, righteous, the righteous, righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged to them. <clears throat> so I think there's a, there's a conversation about what corporate sin is how that interacts in the Christian life. I think there's even a conversation about what familial sin is and how the consequences of sins of grandparents and parents create bad outcomes for, for children and grandchildren. There, there's some principles in the Old Testament and Proverbs that talk about that. But ultimately, you're standing before God, His view of you as a sinner or as um, one of His righteous saints is going to be dependent on your actions, not the actions of your youth minister or your preacher or your friend or even your husband or your parents. It's going to be on you to, to, to uh, consider your standing before God. Okay, in Romans 14. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. All right. <laughs> so, not trying to be like, like hellfire and brimstone tonight, but I think I think... It, that's true. You're going to give an account for yourself to God. And if you never consider or process those kinds of questions, then, um, then I think you're going to kind of miss a lot, a lot of what the point of your life is. All right, so point one, we have rebelled against God. Point two, we're separated. We're separated from God. So the presence of God is associated with the glory of God. The presence of God is associated with the glory of God. This is really the story of a lot of the Bible, from the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the temple, um, the New Testament, the presence of Jesus, um, even in Revelation, this, this idea of God's glory is present where God is. So the presence of God is associated with the glory of God. Because of our sin, we are cut off from God's holy presence. So this is, this is kind of intriguing. So you have this like shadow of things to come, Romans 3.23. Who can read that for us? I'm sorry, Genesis 3.23. So, you know, this is the very beginning of, of the story. When we walked through the biblical narrative last year, we talked about the very beginning, Genesis 3, fallen world separated from God. And you hear shadow, that's kind of the shadow, and the fulfillment of that is in Romans 6, verses 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, so <clears throat> let's just kind of land there and kind of, I want to, I want to kind of feel this heaviness, is that we are separated from God because of our sin. So number one, you're a sinner. You've rebelled against God. Number two, because of that sin, you are separate from God. So the ultimate problem of sin, and this is important, the, the problem with sin isn't that you've done bad things and so now it's going to be hard for you to have a good marriage because you've betrayed your wife. And it's the ultimate problem with sin is not because you've done bad things and you're dishonest and you have a poor work ethic and you can't be a good employee, or that our culture is broken because we don't understand how to interact with people who are different than us, or all the manifestations of sin in your life. That's not the ultimate problem of sin. Those are problems that deserve um, 
being preached to, that deserve being prayed over, that deserve Christian counseling and Christian wisdom to, to improve. But the ultimate problem with sin is that sin separates you from your Creator, who you're meant to have ultimate fulfillment in relationship with. So that, that's the ultimate problem. That's the worst pro- problem that there could possibly be. There's a great, all-powerful being who created you and loves you immensely and wants to give you the great joy that you're designed to have in relationship with Him. And, and we are separate from that. That's, that's, the, great, that's the great tragedy of, of sin and of the human experience. And maybe what's even worse is that we don't recognize it, right? So we go around trying to f- fill this empty hole in our hearts with all kinds of things. Some of them harmless, sports. Kyle and I love fantasy football. Um, maybe professional achievements, friends, relationships. Some of them very harmful. Substances, sexual sin, pornography, trying to fill this emptiness that is in the human heart. And the truth is that, that, that emptiness was meant to only be filled by God himself. And so we're cut off from what fulfills us the most, from what accomplishes our purpose because of who we are as sinners. And say, so, well, David, that, that sounds, that's kind of negative. <laughs> like, is that, is that the gospel message? Well, of course that's not the whole gospel message, right? But it starts there, right? And um, I equate this, you know, a, a lot of us in the room um, take care of patients. And a part of doing that is sometimes you've got to give good news and sometimes you've got to give bad news. And I, I think that the gospel in some ways is kind of like providing a, a diagnosis and treatment plan and results. So, I mean, let me just tell you, like, as somebody who's kind of walking through it, there's almost nothing scarier than bad news and nothing you want more than good news, right? So if, if I told you that tonight that you don't have cancer, I could guarantee you you don't have cancer right now, I mean, you'd probably be thankful, right? Yeah, that's good, you know? I, I don't have cancer. I'm, I'm thankful that I don't have cancer. If you told Dad he didn't have cancer, he'd fall on his face weeping. You know, I mean, you want something that bad. Um, And so that's what the gospel is, is that that you have cancer. You're sick, and it's killing you. And maybe you don't know it. There are people out there that have cancer that don't know it, but you are, and it's true. But the good news is that there is a cure. And it is 100% successful. You don't got to hope that this works. You don't have to sit around anxiously wondering, is the treatment working and wait on the scans? It works. Your cancer can be cured. And so that's the story of the gospel. And it's the why we miss, we miss a story sometimes when we run around telling people that they can be cured and they don't know they're sick. Nobody's going to come take a treatment that they don't think they need. And so when we, tell the, when we tell the story of the gospel, we've got to be willing to tell people the whole truth. Even if um, the beginning of the truth is kind of awkward, right? And nobody talks like that anymore. If you got on Fox News or CNN tonight and started talking about sin, they'd look at you like you had three eyes. Uh, but it doesn't mean it's not true. Okay, and so let's land. Um, man, I'm sorry, we got one more paragraph of bad news. So we are spiritually, we're spiritually dead without God. We're spiritually dead without God. So Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in the transgressions of your sins. Okay, Ephesians 5. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So there's something about being spiritually alive, and and without God, you're spiritually dead. To to become alive. So because of sin, this is just a, a sentence that kind of encompasses the New Testament view of sin here. So because of sin, we are spiritually sick. That's Isaiah one. Oh, yep. 
Why should you be beaten anymore? Any, oh, sorry. Why should you be beaten anymore? Yeah. Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. So, so we're sick because of sin. We're, we're blind. Revelation 3. We're ignorant, ignorant of truth. Ephesians 4. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. We have darkened hearts. Uh, for although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became feeble and their foolish hearts were darkened. We are in a state of enslaved, Romans 6. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? I just want to pause I don't, I don't want to be a slave to anything. And I don't know, probably everyone in this room has, maybe not, but I bet at, at times in your life where you've kind of been in the middle of sin, whether it be anxiety or worry or dishonesty or uh, maybe substance abuse or maybe a sexual sin there's that feeling of you can't quit it you're it's you're like a slave to this sin and um the gospel is offering something beyond that um this idea though that you're not no nothing's going to have authority over your life because you're going to be your own person uh, that's silly right you're going to be you're going to be enslaved to your passions and flesh or you're going to be enslaved to the righteousness that God offers you. And um, there's real freedom in being enslaved to someone who loves you, uh, as opposed to the corruption of sin that is just so decadent. So let's be slaves to God. Uh, but just keep on with sin, so we're also powerless. This is Romans 5. I'll read this one. Don't you know that when you... I'm sorry. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Powerless and in captivity, Colossians 3. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. All right, so let me read this sentence again. <clears throat> Maybe if we start an evangelistic campaign, we'll put this on the, the cards we pass out. Everyone will be so excited. <laughs> because of sin, we are spiritually sick and blind, ignorant of truth, have darkened hearts, and are in a state of enslaved, powerless captivity. Okay? So that's the human condition without Christ. So, we find our greatest joy and fulfillment in being united in relationship with God. But God's holy, and so He can't be around sin, and we're wretched sinners. So this is not you know, uplifting, right? We're not, nothing good has happened yet in, in the story we're telling. Uh, but maybe there's something we can do. Maybe we can cross this barrier between holy God and us as sinful people. So what does the Bible say about that? So Romans 3, verses 19 through 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may, may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be able to, will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we have become conscious of our sin. All right. So no one will be declared righteous by their good works. 
all right, this is awesome, right? So, greatest fulfillment, united with God. God's holy, can't be around sin. We're wretched sinners. Nothing we can do to find fulfillment in God. So we're like, it's stuck. Like, this is like a disaster. Why is this good news? So it becomes clear at this point, I think, you kind of walk through the narrative, the, the, the story of the Bible, the thinking, the theology, up to the beginning of the book of Matthew, what's going on. It becomes clear at this point why we need a Savior. That's Matthew 1. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So we're, we're entering Christmas season, right? Beginning to, you know, we'll have Thanksgiving first, obviously. But um, what happens at Christmas really is theologically significant. Because we needed, we were drowning, and we needed a Savior. We needed someone to save us. And that's really why the, the, the story of Jesus is so powerful. And why we'll start um, the question next week will be, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Because once you understand who God is and who you are, it becomes clear at this point that you need an intercessor. You need an intermediary. You need a Savior. You're not jumping over the Grand Canyon by yourself, right? Maybe... Uh, Maybe you can jump a little bit better than I can. You're a little more athletic or whatever. Maybe you run triathlon, so you like practice jumping. And so you get, but like, ain't neither one of us jumping over the Grand Canyon, right? You're not gonna practice enough to do that. We like, we all need a savior, and um, that, that's really what the New Testament is about. So I want to end with this idea of the tension of the gospel, and so we kind of began developing this idea at the beginning, but we have a holiness and love attributes of God, justice and grace attributes of God. How can they all come together in, in God? So you say, I don't exactly see the tension yet. Well, look, look, there's this esoteric verse in Proverbs 17, 15 that I think is, is interesting. Well, I want to talk about it real quickly. So it says, Proverbs 17, 15, acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. So this is the, the paradigm of viewing God as a judge. Okay, And I want you to think, think for a second, what is a good judge? What is a good judge? And is in some ways is relevant because it's kind of in our culture right now. We're thinking about what is justice, what does a good, fair justice system look like, what are, what are the areas that our justice system is maybe falling short. And I think this this verse kind of lays it out. So acquitting the guilty. So so letting guilty people go free, that's a bad judge, right? We throw that judge off the bench, right? That's corruption. You're letting people go free because they're your friends or they're powerful or they're belong to whatever group. That's a that's a bad judge. Um, but another way you can be a bad judge is you can condemn the innocent. So you can take an innocent person and throw them in jail. Then you're a, you're a bad judge too. So what is a good judge? Well, a good judge is going to condemn the guilty, right? If you're guilty, you should be condemned. We don't, we're not letting the guilty go free. And then um, you're setting free the innocent, right? So that's, that's what we're looking for if God is the perfect judge. So let me read this quote, and then, then we'll kind of land, land our lesson tonight. <coughs> The question our culture asks is, God, how can you punish sinners? Have you ever you asked that question? You, maybe you've heard a friend ask that question. Maybe a non-Christian friend kind of challenging you. How can God punish sin? God, how can you let people go to hell? That's even more pointed. I've, I've heard that question. We point the finger at his, at his character. Question, how could he do that? The Bible does just the opposite. It's because the, the Bible has a God-centered worldview we have a man-centered worldview. I want you to really think about that. When you think about the world, I'm just going to challenge you. In 2019, you know, postmodern, um, capitalist, and materially wealthy, um, large media America, you see the world through a man-centered worldview. 
what's good is in your eyes is seen as good because it is beneficial to people and and what's bad is the opposite and i just want to challenge us that if we want to really understand the gospel we got to see the world the way that that, that god sees the world and the, the bible has a god-centered worldview the great offense of the bible is that a holy and just god has been um, offended by this by the sin of his creatures and the story of the bible from genesis to revelation is god working through history to reunite his his image bearers back to himself while maintaining his justice okay god preserves his holiness and his love while reuniting himself to his creatures so it's because the bible has a god-centered worldview and we have a man-centered worldview the bible is not asking how can god punish sinners the Bible is not asking, how can God punish sinners? The Bible is asking, how in the world can God let rebels into heaven? How can God maintain His glory and let those who have belittled His glory into heaven? And this is the tension with which the gospel confronts us. How can God show all His attributes, His holiness and His mercy, His wrath and His love, His justice and His grace? How can He show all these things? And the answer is, the just and gracious God of the universe looked upon hopelessly sinful people and sent His Son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear His wrath against sin on the cross and to show His power over sin in the resurrection. Jesus is the only way this tension is revealed. There is no other religious system, no other religious philosophy that can bring this tension together, that can relieve this tension. Only Jesus Christ can do this. How can He do that? And that's what we'll talk about next week. As we'll see in the coming weeks, the answer to this question is found at the foot of the cross. It's a beautiful answer, worthy of the name gospel. And so listen, as somebody who I try the best I can to center my life on the gospel, I, I can't just leave it there. i got to get one paragraph to say how the tension is, is revealed. And of course, it's at the cross. right? So you, you, ask, you ask the question, does God hate sin? Is God really holy? Is He really just? Will He really punish sin? And the answer is, of course, yes. And the way you can know that's true is look at the cross. All of God's wrath was poured out on His Son because He hates sin that much. He hates your sin that much that He allows His Son to violently take on your sin in, in, a, in a moment of glory. And the, the reason that moment is so glorious is, is the second question, does God really love me? Right? And you may be asking that question, does God love me here in Memphis, Tennessee? kind of struggling with school, not exactly sure what, what my future holds. God loves me. And the answer is, of course, yes. And the way you know it's true is the, is the same thing. You look at the cross. God loves you enough that He's willing to die and take on the punishment that you were due in order to have a relationship with you forever. And so that's the gospel. Um, and it, it, it's a gospel that's exclusive in its offering, relationship with God through faith in Jesus, but it's it's inclusive in who has the opportunity to access it. Everyone in the world. Because we all got the same disease. The cure for the disease is accessible to everyone. And so we'll talk about this in three weeks. But the, the gospel, uh, the fifth question of the gospel is uh, about the urgency of eternity. If this is really true, we can't keep living our lives um, in the um, normalcy and comforts and going through the motions like the rest of, frankly, the Christian world does. Preaching about things as they come up, kind of just going through the routines of daily life. If this is really true, it deserves your whole life. Your treasure, your prayers, your life, your, your talents, all of it is in there so the world may know that there's a cure. All right, let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much. We thank you uh, for truth. We thank you for... Um, 
a truth about ourselves that we see and, and just rings true to us about how we know and experience life that we're separate from you and we don't live up to, uh, to the standards that you've called us to. But God, we're thankful for Jesus and the cross and the opportunity we have because of his life uh, to live with you for eternity. I pray that we would live tomorrow for things that will matter 10,000 years from now. God, help us. Please help us to not be short-sighted, but to trust in you uh, with our eternity. It's in your son's holy name we pray. Amen.